Spirit, we pray, overrule and overwhelm. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't say anything stupid this morning. And I pray that what I do say would be uh, in conformity to your word and your will, and it would point towards you, and that you would be glorified. We do pray for your spirit to be at work in us through, the, through your word, changing us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. That brilliant and insightful Nobel Prize award winning cultural commentator, philosopher, poet, singer, songwriter, Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. And in that song, we listened actually to Etta James' version of You Got to Sing Somebody. I thought Miss James' version was much better because I could actually understand what she was saying as, a, as opposed to um, Nobel laureate Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody. You're going to worship something. Is what the, uh, the message of the song was. You're going to worship something. In his work, Brothers Karamazov, Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky writes, So long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. Dostoevsky hits upon a foundation stone of what it means to be human. Bob Dylan, in the midst of his sort of Christian revolution, his Christian phase, hits upon something of what it means to be human. We are formed, we are made to worship. Now, I know that, that some here in this room this morning, and I certainly know that some in this world are thinking, of course you say that. You're quoting from Fyodor Dostoevsky, who, who seems to have been an Orthodox Christian. You're quoting from Bob Dylan, who at least in that phase of his life was, was a Christian. And, and now you're standing there as a pastor in the middle of a Christian worship service. You have to say that man was made to worship, right? That's what a skeptic would say. And I would agree with them, you're absolutely right, but the reality is that this isn't just a, a Christian perspective, it isn't just people of faith who assert that humans are formed to worship. The secular novelist David Foster Wallace in his 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And worship is a reality of life, perhaps even the most real and foundational part of life. Simply stated, I, I think that we can talk about worship being the ordering or the aligning, the aiming of the entirety of a person toward that thing to which they are most devoted, that thing they love above all else. That's what worship is. Love is not so simply reduced to an emotion or a feeling as our, our modern culture attempts to reduce it. Love is not something that you fall into and fall out of. Love is not necessarily dependent even upon emotions or feeling. It's not dependent upon the, the chemical response and the ooey-gooey of puppy love. That's not what we're talking about. Love is devotion. To love something or someone is to be devoted to that something or someone. It is to give yourself to that something or someone. 
You think about the love uh, that we talk about within the covenant of marriage. Uh, In Scripture, it says the two shall become one flesh because the two utterly give the wholeness of themselves to one another. That's devotion far more than it is a 2016 understanding of love. And that is the heart of worship. Giving yourself all of who you are to an object of worship. Humans made in the image of God were made to worship God, to give themselves to God, to love God. And not some ambiguously defined spaghetti monster floating around or something that we made up out of our minds, but the God who truly exists, the creator of all that is. But humans, guilty of personal sin and with inherited guilt and tendency to sin, do not love rightly. Our love is out of whack. What we devote ourselves to is out of whack. And so our worship is out of whack. There are an innumerable host of objects of worship, of love in this world. Theologian John Calvin even called the human heart an idol factory because of our amazing ability to make anything and anyone into a God, an object of worship, an object of our love, an object of our devotion. We quite often love the wrong thing, and so we worship the wrong thing. There is, however, one true God, and this one true God is unlike any other object of worship. This one true God is unlike any other object of worship because He alone is good and kind. He alone is the God who seeks out worshipers, and as He receives worship from them, He meets them to transform them. The God of the Bible has made people to worship. He seeks them, and as as he encounters them, he transforms them, rightly aligning their love toward him. In the middle of this longer conversation with the Samaritan lady, Jesus says, there's a time coming, it's now here. That means Jesus says, the time that's coming is now here because I am here. Not me, Caleb, but Jesus The time is now here because Jesus is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So there's a time that's now arrived because of Jesus where true worship occurs in truth built upon Jesus and in spirit uh, built in in the power of the Holy Spirit. This not confuse the issue. The, The Samaritan woman is looking face to face with the one who is the truth. And the Samaritan woman is looking into the eyes of the one who promises later in John to give the Holy Spirit. She is literally in the presence of one who makes the worship that he's talking about possible. Maybe that's just a big deal to me. I don't know. But that's pretty cool. The Father is seeking True worship. He's seeking worship that is done correctly, and then he provides that which is necessary for that worship to be done. Jesus. How amazing is this statement from Jesus that the Father is seeking such people to worship him? The Father, the creator of all that is, in his perfect unity is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lacks nothing. And yet he seeks to share himself with worshipers. And if nothing else in all of this world separates God, the God of the Bible, the God of reality, from the gods that we create, 
that does. No other God, no other deity in all of world religions and all of religious history seeks out worshipers the way that God does. I wonder if we can't think of the story of God found in the Bible as the story of God seeking those who worship him. Think of what he does. He creates. He seeks to share himself just because he wants to. The Bible begins with God creating all that exists, and then it continues with God after sin entered into the world, calling and choosing a specific family from which to create a nation. A nation with the wider purpose of blessing the world. And then when that nation goes into slavery, he pulls them out, a mixed multitude, pulls them out to be his people, to be his worshipers. Another step is taken as the eternal son takes on flesh. Jesus comes into the world, proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God, and enacts it with his death and resurrection. And now truth is here in a new and incarnated way. And after Jesus returned to the side of the Father, God, remember, seeking worshipers, pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And now worshipers of God worship in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, standing upon the foundation of the truth, Jesus. And the Bible ends with God telling his people the goal of history, the full and final destruction of evil and death as his people in spirit and truth, are gathered to him to share in his love, glory, and joy of the Trinity for all eternity in worship. See, humans were made for that end, to worship. Humans were made to be worshipers. The only question, David Foster Wallace says to those graduates of Kenyon College in 2005, the only question is, who will you worship? Made to worship, now through Jesus, renewed and remade for worship. Why? Because we deserve it? Because we've earned it? No. Because God seeks worshipers, and in his grace, he makes exactly what he seeks. What marvelous things he has done. What marvelous things he has done. God seeks worship. He seeks worshipers, and he forms those who worship him. The God of the Bible has made people to worship. He seeks them, and then as he encounters them in worship, he transforms them. All worship is transformational. It is. It's true, no matter what we worship. Whether we're worshiping at the Golden Corral and our gluttony, or whether we're worshiping our job because we work 100 hours a week, or whether we worship our children or our families or because we worship education. Whatever we're worshiping will form us into its image. We worship what we love, what we're devoted to, and what we worship we will become like. Because worship transforms us. We align our lives toward the object of our worship, and as we do that, we become much like that which we worship. Worship is transformational because it addresses us as human beings on the heart level, on the level of this Greek concept, cardia. This is the heart, the place or seat of feeling and affection. You've probably heard Father Mike refer to knowing in your knower, right? You've heard that? Some of us have, but the rest of us weren't paying attention, Linda. When Father Mike refers to knowing with our knower, this is what he's talking about. 
This is what I think he's referring to, not just this intellectual knowledge or understanding, but an understanding, a knowing that's at a deeper level, punching us in the guts, so to speak. You just know it to be true. Worship does engage our minds, but worship works on a deeper level at the level of the heart. And that is the place where transformation and formation occurs. There's really only two alternatives when it comes to transformation. Two alternatives that are intimately connected to whether we worship what is true and real or what is false and idolatrous. If we worship what is false, we will be transformed into the image of that false thing. If you look at Psalm 135 when you get home this afternoon, we read this, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. And then the psalmist says this, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Worship is transformational. And if you worship that which is false, you will yourself become false. But if we worship the Creator God through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves formed into the very image of Christ our Lord. And this is the promise of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, St. Paul wrote, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is formed or transformed in worship is our hearts, as the love of our hearts is directed, redirected, aligned, re-aimed. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, philosopher James Smith writes, Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper believer, behavior. Rather, it is a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly. How do you want to love rightly? Worship God. Being a disciple of Jesus is a matter of having rightly aligned love, a heart with true aim. Worship transforms us as it addresses our hearts and the directions of our love. The worship of God the Creator through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit and in His presence rightly aligns our love toward Him primarily using three means, liturgy, word, and sacrament. Liturgy is formational. Our hearts are orientated toward what we love, and our love is developed, strengthened, and aligned by the habit-forming practices in which we participate. And whether we're talking within the context of Christian worship or we're talking about college football, liturgies form us. Liturgy is simply the ritual or forms of practice that we do with consistency as we engage what we love. You don't believe me that college football is a liturgical practice? Go to a home game at a major university. I went to Oklahoma State in the mid-90s. We were terrible. Made it to one bowl game while I was there. We lost. It was the Alamo Bowl in 1997, got beat by Drew Brees and Purdue. i not bitter or anything. <laughs> Your very first home game that you go to as a freshman in college, you begin to learn the practice. You begin to direct your love and devotion towards, in my case, Oklahoma State. It was the same every home game. 
You walk into the stadium and you, you swipe your student ID. You go in and you find your seat. It was a bleacher seat back then. It was before Boone Pickens and his $200 million showed up. Uh, so it was a bleacher seat. There's high school stadiums far better than Oklahoma State Stadium when I was there. It wasn't good. But you go and you find your seat, right? And you watch as the, the team comes out and the, the kickers come out and they practice and the punters come out and they practice. And then the team comes out and they go through all their drills. And then the marching band comes out onto the field and they play the fight songs of the school, right? We're, we're building spirit. We're aiming our devotion towards our school. And then at some point during that pregame ritual, the liturgy, the band would sort of split and out would come riding the spirit rider. There's a black horse named Bullet, and there's a person who rides Bullet waving at an Oklahoma State flag. And every time at the beginning of the game, the announcer would say, now here comes Bullet. And don't be looking at me like this. Auburn has an eagle, all right? And if Alabama could figure out how an elephant connected to the Crimson Tide, they would have an elephant. But every time the game would begin, right, and, and, and we would, we, before the game started, there, there's the coin toss and the announcing of the captains. Everybody, 50,000 people, plus the people on the field, would stand up, put their hands over their hearts, or stand at attention at the very least, and pay and, 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 and respect to the flag as the national anthem is played. And then every time Oklahoma State got a first down, it wasn't that often, every time they got a first down, maybe because we celebrated, the announcer would say, oh, that's good for the Cowboys. And the crowd would say, first down and 10, aiming our hearts at the love of Oklahoma State. Every time we scored, again, it wasn't that often, the here come bullet would be sprinting out to the 30-yard line. We would all raise our right hands and we would wave the wheat as we sang, ride, 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 ride them cowboys on down the field. Texas A&M has a pep rally before every home game so they can practice their cheers, people. This ain't just me. <laughs> Liturgy is forming what you love, right? At the end of the game, the alma mater is sung. Peyton Manning, he, he hung around Tennessee for his senior year. And I think, if I can remember correctly, he said one of the greatest things he ever did at Tennessee was get to lead the alma mater or the fight songs at the end of the game. That is a secular liturgy that worked on my 18-year-old heart to direct me to love Oklahoma State as bad as we were. And I'm 39 years old, and I still love Oklahoma State, even though now we win by the skin of our teeth. And you know what I saw yesterday? They barely won in Manhattan, Kansas. They showed Oklahoma State fans at the end of the game waving the wheat. It's a liturgy. That is a liturgy that forms us. And if we have something as, forgive me, this is the South, if we have something that is, is as eternally insignificant as college football that forms our love and devotion, what about something that is eternally significant? God the Creator. He uses the liturgy to get in our way. People can say sometimes, but Father Caleb, the liturgy is so boring. We do the same thing every week. And I think that's exactly the point. We don't have to guess what to say next. We don't have to guess when we kneel, when we stand, when we sit. We can learn the rhythm. We can learn the practice. The liturgy doesn't make us, it, it frees us to actually worship. The liturgy gets us out of the way so God can get in the way. And that's what we need because we got to have our hearts changed. Liturgy allows us to slow down, to enter into the presence of God. It allows God to engage with our hearts through our whole bodies. 
And so there isn't a part of our human bodies that's not involved in the liturgy. Our, our knees and our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, even our rear ends are involved in the liturgy. And in the context and practice of liturgical worship, God works to transform us by engaging us through word and sacrament. We are what we love, James Smith says, and our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. The word, the Bible, is the chief means of God's grace. Christian philosopher and poet Propaganda once referred to the Bible as God's diary because it's the story of God and His creation. In it, we read and we hear the record of God's actions in the past, His promises uh, for the present and for the future. In the proclamation of the Word, we hear the Gospel as we're confronted by the two realities that first, we are worse sinners than we really think we are, and second, we are more greatly loved than we can possibly imagine because God provides salvation through grace in Jesus. And while the proclamation of the word uses our ears and it engages the mind, it is ultimately aimed at the heart. Jesus explained the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 by talking about the various soils of the human heart. And St. Paul in Romans chapter 10 summarizes both the proper response to the gospel and the nature of justification when he states, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your medulla oblongata, no, that's not right. If you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. God uses his word to address our hearts, and through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he transforms us as it centers the aim of our devotion upon the one revealed and proclaimed in Scripture. Within the liturgy, the word, but also the sacraments, another chief means of God's grace. We celebrate the Eucharist, the the Lord's Supper, the communion weekly. In, through, and by the sacraments, God encounters his worshipers and gives them grace because he gives himself through them. Thomas Cranmer, writing about the sacraments, says that through them, God does effectually work. God is at work. He is the chief actor. He is the one who is giving grace, and he gives himself through the sacraments. Why? So that we can feel good about ourselves? No, that so we, we can be transformed into the image of the Son at the heart level. It is transformational as God gives grace to change the inclination and the direction of our hearts, our love as he encounters us. Through the liturgy, Through word and sacrament, those who are worshipers of God engage with God on His terms so that He might be glorified and praised and so that He might change them, changing our hearts, ordering the love of our hearts rightly. As human beings, we will worship someone or something. Our love will be aligned and aimed at someone or something. We will worship and we will be formed into the image of that which we worship, that at which our love is aimed. And only the God of the Bible 
The creator who gives himself for salvation and life in the Son seeks and meets with worshipers for their good that they may have life and have it abundantly. Only this God is worthy to be praised. The truth is we need to worship. The truth is we need to worship far more than God needs our worship. God doesn't need anything. He's perfect. He lacks nothing. And yet he allows for us to come into his presence because we need the transformation that God gives. And maybe I'm alone in this, I don't know, but life in this world certainly has its way of tearing down and shifting the aim of my devotion, shifting the aim of my love. In worship, God realigns. In worship, God renews. In worship, God transforms. In worship, those things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new. What a marvelous truth. What amazing grace. God seeks worshipers. God meets with his worshipers. God transforms his worshipers. The God of the Bible has made people to worship. He seeks them, and then as he encounters them in worship, he transforms them. Made in the image of God, we have to worship. But redeemed by Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to worship the God who seeks us and transforms us. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.